Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Okay, I'd completely forgotten that Sunday was Father's Day until I got an ad on Instagram reminding me to buy, like, a grill or whatever for my dad. Which, first off, he has one already, and secondly, my mom is the one who usually uses it. But gender roles and advertising aside, it's as good a time as any to give a shout-out to the dads out there, and a reminder to give them their due, especially if they're still around. In a bit, we'll hear from a writer who wrote a memoir about her dad who has dementia and who was also a full-on spy. And she gets from him all these fascinating stories that she keeps close to her, which is similar to what Heather McDonald did. Her acclaimed 2015 memoir, Ages for a Hawk, is about the time she spent training a hawk after her father's sudden death, and she uses the time to ruminate on her dad and about life and death. She talked to Here and Now's Robin Young after the book came out and said that training the hawk tied her to the world again and made her feel like nothing was completely lost. To read Helen McDonald's new memoir is to have every cell of your body awake and alive. You watch the words go by like, well, like a hawk. H is for Hawk tells of how, after her beloved father suddenly dies, Helen decides to raise and train one of the most vicious birds of prey, the goshawk. Helen is a falconer. She's hawked before, and we readers learn what that is. She's also an historian, a naturalist, a research scholar at the University of Cambridge in England. But when she first meets the bird she'd heard described as a spooky, pale-eyed psychopath, even she thinks, what have I done? The goshawk is staring at me in mortal terror, and I can feel the silences between both our heartbeats coincide. Her eyes are luminous, silver in the gloom. Her beak is open. She breathes hot hawk breath in my face. It smells of pepper and musk and burnt stone. Her feathers are half raised and her wings half open, and her scaled yellow toes and curved black talons grip the glove tightly. It feels like I'm holding a flaming torch. She names her goshawk Mabel, and later when she takes Mabel hunting, she feels like she's holding the bastard offspring of a flaming torch and an assault rifle. But wait, Mabel is also playful, a calm companion. None of the hawking books, including one of the most famous by T.H. White, yes, author of The Sword and the Stone, none mention that. So Helen's book includes a riveting parallel story about T.H. White. The New York Times calls it beautiful and nearly feral. And Helen McDonald joins us from the BBC studios. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be speaking with you. Well, I'm thinking those two words, beautiful and nearly feral, describe you at certain points in this book as well. Yeah, well, I I don't know. I just became this very, very strange creature, you know. I used to get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, then just pick the hawk out of her perch and and, and go off into the wild. And I'd I'd watch her fly for hours on end and I'd get covered in mud and thorn scratches. And yeah, I became this very different beast. We'll talk about how you get here. You had one of those childhoods that we in America sometimes think only happens on Masterpiece Theater, Um, (laughs) wandering fields with binoculars, collecting reindeer moss. What was it about birds? I honestly don't know. I mean, I loved birds from, and I was so young that I can't put a finger on when it started. I used to dream about them at night. I used to draw them compulsively. And my my parents put up with me. I don't know how they did it. I was this strange, obsessed child that um, used to constantly talk about, particularly birds of prey. I thought they were the most beautiful things that the world had ever made. And the family was already not putting up with, but adoring. Uh, a father, husband, who was a photographer, a newspaper photographer. And as you write your memoir, you realize how connected 
it is to be a photographer and to be someone who stands and watches things like birds. Absolutely. And I think I learned really how to see the world from my father. He was a very, very great press photographer. And he really taught me how that the world was full of extraordinary, beautiful happenings and that your job was to kind of be there and, and witness them. When he dies, you really have one of the best descriptions I've ever seen of feeling that sudden loss. I, If I may, I, I remember when my father died way too young, when an ambulance went by, I stood still and said to myself, oh, they're coming to get me because they must see that how I'm feeling is somehow showing on the outside. And I literally stood there. Absolutely. Describe how broken you felt. Yeah. In the first sort of week or so, it felt like I was made of of dully burning metal, Mm. you know, sort of red hot. And if you put put me on a sofa or a a chair or a bed, I'd just burn right through. Mm. You know, when you told me that story there about the ambulances, I remember, you know, hearing ambulances after my father died and, and all I could think of was that, you know, that obviously one had gone to him and it, it had not managed to save him and I just stand there with tears in my eyes, you know, hot tears. I mean, it's a very, very hard time. Well, so you become a perfect companion for a hawk at that point. <laughs> now, now, just talk a little bit um, what this is. Literally training a bird to sit on your fist and the goal is that someday you're going to let that bird go and hope it comes back. The American writer Stephen Bodio describes it as learning how to be polite to a bird. It's not a, it's not a cruel relationship. It's not one of subjection and, and kind of power. It's really a, a very extraordinary close relationship in which, you know, your, your goal is to get the hawk to accept you as kind of a companion and then go out and watch the hawk do what it would do naturally in the wild, which is fly and soar and hunt. For many, many millennia, there have been people like me sitting in darkened rooms, willing hawks to to lean down and take that first bite of raw meat from your gloved fist, you know, the the first step on that long journey. And then once they associate you with someone who can care for them and provide food and and a home, you then let them go where they do what they do, which is hunt. And what's fascinating is, here you are, a person who hadn't thought about death as acutely before your father's mm. death, and now you're realizing you're complicit with a natural killer. Yeah, I mean, it's the great irony, I suppose, that there I was running from death as fast as I could and sort of flying with the hawk to try and escape it. And, of course, these hawks are natural killers. And I had to, uh, you know, be with the hawk while she hunted. And, of course, you know, hawks aren't particularly kind creatures, you know, when they catch birds or animals, they just start eating. And at some point, you know, the animal, the poor animal is going to expire. And I had to run in and, and you know, humanely put these poor things out of their misery. Mm. And that was a very, very intense and extraordinary and very, I guess, humbling experience to realize we don't see death anymore. It's not something that, that many people really have any contact with. And it, it, it was very educational in the deepest possible sense. That's Helen MacDonald. Her new piercingly uh, wonderful memoir is called H is for Hawk. And Helen, you'd gotten to the point in the book when after weeks and weeks of training, you are flying her. What's it called? Is a word for it. is it hawking? What is? Yeah, hawking. You go hawking with a, with a, with a bird of prey. So yeah, you, initially you train them on a long line called the creance, and then you take the creance away. And the only thing that keeps the hawk with you really are those bonds of trust and love that you sort of forged over the the few weeks that you've you've been with the bird. And it's always a very intense time when you fly a hawk free. Can you describe a little more what it's like to see this this bird that could also play catch with crumpled up paper with you in your apartment? What's that like to see a goshawk? When I used to watch Mabel fly, quite often it would be as if 
she was flying at the right speed and everything else that was happening around slowed right down. You know, like everything's rabbits were running. It's almost as if they were sort of running through liquid. It, it, it had extraordinary um, effects on, on, on the sort of way that, that the world appeared to me. And then those moments when, you know, the bird would go out of sight and I'd suddenly get panicked and think, you know, where is she? And You'd get panicked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading my stomach was, you know, flip-flopping. You have to trust that she'll come back. You do. And I, I think, you know, deep down, that's part of the reason that I flew to the hawk at that point. You know, I'd suffered this great loss. My father and I were very, very good friends, as well as him being a very dear father. And falconry, I guess, is, it's about that sense of things going away and then things coming back again. And every time the hawk flew back, it somehow kind of, it tied me to the world again. It was like, you know, nothing was completely lost. It was a, a very strong emotional kind of movement. Well, but there's a point where you realize you've become lost. You've crossed over too much into hawk territory. You eventually go to a doctor. He prescribes antidepressants. And you slowly give Mabel her own world, se- separate yourself Yes, I guess I guess I'd spent so much time with that hawk and I'd avoided everyone. I'd kind of, you know, barricaded my door against the world and I just wanted to be a hawk, you know, and I say in the book that they're kind of solitary and self-possessed, they don't suffer grief, you know, and I, I just wanted to be that thing. And I guess I, I realised after going to the doctors, which was a kind of grimly funny experience, actually, um, particularly the question he asked me on, on this questionnaire is, you know, did I take less care over my appearance than previously and there I was in this thorn-ripped trousers you know covered in <laughs> rabbit blood but I guess I realized that I'd I'd mistaken uh, I'd made this great mistake and I'd, I'd run too far into the wild I tried to heal myself through going into the wild and actually I the hawk wasn't me the hawk was to be treasured because she was so different from me she was utterly herself and utterly wild and once I realized that things became a little bit less pointed a little bit less hard to bear we only have a little time here, but she was also so much different than you'd been told. And there's a scene where you go back over all these esteemed hawking books, and you, you conclude, and, and a little bit about T.H. White here, these men, largely men, missed something about uh, having a hawk as a companion. Yeah, it's really uh, kind of grimly funny that a lot of the Victorian 19th century books uh, talked about goshawks in ways that made them seem very much like kind of hysterical women, you know. If they <laughs> sat up trees or flew away, it was never your fault, you know. You ha- It was always them. And then I discovered, yes, that I could play with Mabel, you know. We, she used to play like a kitten. And I remember talking to some goshawk friends of mine, and they were all horrified, all these boys. They said, you know, you don't play with goshawks. You know, you just don't. But recently I've discovered that they all do. They just don't let on about it. So I think that says something about kind of masculine culture rather than the hawks themselves. Just a, a thought on poor T.H. White, who got a goshawk, what, perhaps hoping that he could erase his his own relationship with his father, interestingly, and yet he only repeated it in a way. His father was abusive and he was somewhat abusive to his hawk. Yeah, it's a terribly, terribly tragic story in a beautiful book, The Goshawk, that he wrote about this experience. He was trying to tame himself or to conquer himself through through conquering this bird. And I think that's the lesson of the book, maybe, if if there is one, is that we, we so routinely use nature as a mirror of our own needs. And both White and I did that with our hawks initially. And luckily, my hawk 
you know, I kind of realized my mistake and, and, and Mabel and I, you know, had a very healthy life compared to Goss and, and White. But it is a it's, a, it's a real lesson. And I think that's one of the reasons I called the book H is for Hawk. It's like a kind of child's book. It's how to, how to learn, how to learn how to look at the world. Well, that's remarkable. Helen MacDonald, the book again about training Mabel the Goshawk is H is for Hawk. Helen MacDonald, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As a radio person, I've always wanted to do that thing where I record my parents just telling their stories, you know, just so I have it to listen to after they're gone. I always find a way to put it off until like the next visit, though. But after listening to this 2017 interview between NPR's Ari Shapiro and Keggy Carew, whose memoir, Dadland, is about her digging into her father's stories after his dementia, I might actually really try and do it. Here's the interview. Keggy Carew's father, Tom Carew, was known as Lawrence of Burma and the Mad Irishman. In her new book, Dadland, we find out why. It's a memoir that combines espionage and war stories with reflections on parent-child relationships. When Keggy Carew began writing this book, her father's war days were long behind him. He was losing his memory to dementia. Carew describes a moment she took him to see a play in London. And on the top step, Dad trips. And he starts falling all the way down the stairs, bump, 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 all the way down to the bottom. And everybody in the theatre foyer just stares and freezes because, you know, there's an 85-year-old man tumbling down the stairs. And we all freeze. And then he sits up, dusts himself down, completely unscathed, unbruised, perfectly fine. And there's a loud sigh of relief. And I mean, what we have just witnessed was him going straight into a parachute role and his Jebra training just clocked in straight away. Jedbra training. The Jeds, as they were called, were an elite secret unit during the Second World War. Keggy Carew's father was trained to lead partisans in Europe who sabotaged the Germans. While Carew had heard stories about her father's war years, she was never sure how much to believe. Then she went to a Jed reunion with him and learned more about how they trained. Here she reads from the book. By the end of the training, there would be nothing about guerrilla warfare they wouldn't know. How to blow up a train, a tree, a railway line, a road, a canal, a factory, a power station, a dam, a reservoir, high-tension pylons. They had to be able to set a mine, attach a clam, lay tyre bursters, throw a grenade by instinct, neutralise a booby trap, prepare an ambush. There was observation and memory training, intelligence gathering, how to conduct surveillance, how to know if you were being followed, reception techniques for receiving airdrop supplies, night parachuting. There were lessons in unarmed combat, silent killing and survival. They would have to be able to swim with a limpet mine and pitch a lump of plastic explosive into a moving train. I look at Dad quizzically. Silent killing? He shrugs his shoulders. I want to start with something that you write at the very end of this book, which is that you compare the experience of writing this to a pair of trains leaving the station going in different directions. Mm. Explain what, what you mean by that. Well, it was a parallel journey. As my dad was losing his memory, I had set the task of retrieving it. But it was like, as his life was sort of going out of the station, I was chasing the train in the other direction. And so the book itself juxtaposes the incredible kind of mundane tragedy of someone who's unable to do the most basic things against the extraordinary exploits of people parachuting out of airplanes and surviving in the jungle on no food. 
I can only imagine what it was like to live that every day as you were writing. Well, yeah, it was extraordinary. One minute I would be with a, a log with nine men that was had been um, mined in a, on a road in Tipperary in Ireland. And the next minute I'd be in the Burmese jungle. And the next minute I'd be in France. The next minute I'd be with my dad in the garden. I'd be walking around the corner and I hear him say to the neighbour, I don't remember you, but I do remember your teeth. They're rather distinctive. So when you say mundane... It, it was never mundane with dad, even with dementia. It was, there was really never a dull moment. Do you think that if you had done this excavation of your father's history before his dementia began setting in, that it would have been a different experience? Yeah, I think it would have been a very, very different experience. First of all, in a way, I had more freedom because he wasn't there to ask. I had a lot of the very, very colourful anecdotes that I carried about with me since a child. And those were the stories that he told where he'd outwitted some general or done something smart. But the actual nuts and bolts of it and also the, the really astonishing stuff was buried in secret files that weren't actually available until the last 15 years. They were all stamped with secrets and hidden away and you couldn't actually access them. So I think it would have been a very different book and it wouldn't have had that woven quality that it has where your chronology is replaced by memory so that the memory comes and goes and one go moves around from the past into the present and back to front. I think every child probably to some extent views their parent as a superhero. Was there a moment in adulthood or perhaps even as you were researching this book that it suddenly hit you that these were not just stories, that he actually had done these incredible daring feats during wartime? Well, I knew he was called Lawrence of Burma and the Mad Irishman because we had these newspaper reports from India from 1945. And, you know, we I used to take them to school, <laughs> show people. <laughs> and I knew he parachuted out of planes into the jungle. And I knew he was a spy in Burma. But when I really found out the truth, the truth was so much more outrageous. And he was <laughs> in so much more kind of crucial part of history when, when the Burmese guerrillas were trying to get their independence. And he was... From the Japanese. From the Japanese. And he was working with Aung San Suu Kyi's father who was later assassinated. Oh, it, it was so brilliant. It was much better than I thought. I didn't think I would be writing quite so much about that, but it was so fascinating. I couldn't resist getting really deeply into some of that stuff. What does it mean to you now that he's gone to have this work that you've created that is a tribute to a man who shaped you, created you, influenced you, and is no longer with us? Well, it's in a way he he's been more with us with this book. It's been incredible. It's been a, a very um, cathartic thing with my family. Actually, we've have talked about you know the more difficult sides of our life together since this book's come out, and. Um, and it also, I think, acts as a sort of universal, uh, resonates universally because it's it's about lots of things that families um, experience. Apart, obviously, not the guerrilla warfare, jumping out of planes. Stuff. No, my family's well, never experienced that. No, but then lots of other things, um, family things. You know, the grief, the loss, the love. You know, the the dementia side, um, and you know, perfect lives are not very interesting, and ours is certainly not. <laughs> Uh, so I felt it was a kind of way to reach out. It, it, 
in a way like an as an everyman or uh, you know the experiences that we all have um and yeah that's that was important to me so that that it that it did resonate in that way well keggy Carew, thanks so much for your time thank you very much it was lovely speaking to you keggy Carew's book is called dadland And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor was Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Tyler Bartlam, Lucy Perkins, Hiba Ahmad, Hadil Al-Salchi, Michael Levitt, Courtney Dorning, Lena Muhammad, Justine Kennan, Art Silverman, and Melissa Gray. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.